Our goal in going through the Gospel of John is to meet Jesus. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding, even in the church, but especially in the world as a whole, about who Jesus is and what Jesus says and what He does. And so, uh, as we go through John's Gospel, I hope that you're getting a picture of uh, of this of this man uh, around whom the church, around whom Christianity is built, and really in whom uh, Christianity and the church find her life. So we'll be in John chapter 6. We're finishing up, finally, uh, this, this long chapter. And just by way of reminder, at the very beginning of the chapter, John, excuse me, Jesus provided food for thousands of people. And he did so with just a few loaves uh, and a couple of fish. One of, uh, it's, it's the one miracle that is recounted in all four Gospels, and so it was the most well-known but the, the people's response to the miracle was not, uh, was, was, was not right. What they wanted, they wanted to take Jesus and make him a king. They saw the power in Jesus and wanted to use it for their own ends. And so Jesus says, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I'm here for. And so he gets confrontational. He corrects their misunderstanding or aims to at least. He tells them, listen, it's not about earthly bread. It's about spiritual bread. What you're looking for is just going to go away. It's going to perish. But what you need is actually bread that will lead you to eternal life. And I am that bread. I am the one that you're looking for. I'm better than anything else. And so you should trust me. And he even goes so far as to say, he takes, uh, he takes it so far as to say, really to trust me, what that means is you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So if you don't... Trust me that way. If you don't take me into you that way, uh, then you will not have eternal life. You will not be raised up on the last day. And so we're going to pick up just a little bit before the passage we're looking at today to give you a sense of the context. John 6, I'll start reading in verse 54. Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and now the preaching of your word. Help us to understand that we may have life, that we, may, that, that we wouldn't leave here unchanged. Show us Jesus. Help us to feed on Him and to know what it means to truly follow Him. We pray it in His name. Amen. You may be familiar with the book by Dale Carnegie. It was actually a course that he taught, and it's been republished. It's like the bestseller of all self-help books ever, How to Win Friends and Influence People. All right? Um, I've never read the book. I just took some stuff off Wikipedia um, because why read a book when you have the Internet? So... Uh, here are just a few ways, a few, a few pointers uh, from uh, Carnegie on how to win friends and influence people. Um, some of the ways to win people to your way of thinking. The only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Show respect for the other person's opinions. Never say you're wrong. Begin in a friendly way. Start with questions to which the other person will answer, yes. Let the other person do a great deal of talking. Let the other person feel the idea is his or hers. Be sympathetic with the other person's ideas and desires. Appeal to nobler motives. Now, that, those aren't necessarily bad things. Uh, those, some, some good, uh, some, maybe some good pointers there on how to interact with people. Uh, Here are Carnegie's thoughts on how to be a leader, how to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. Begin with praise and honest appreciation. That's good. Uh, Call attention to people's mistakes indirectly. Uh, Talk about your own mistakes before criticizing the other person. Ask questions instead of giving direct orders. Praise every improvement. Let the other person save face. Use encouragement. Make the fault seem easy to correct. Make the other person happy about doing what you suggest. Jesus did not read how to win friends and influence people. In fact, if you were to uh, read John 6, you would almost say it's a manual on how not to win friends and influence people. Just think about it. We began the chapter with thousands of people thronging to Jesus, seeking Jesus, listening to Jesus. He's now two years, about two years into public ministry, and he has developed a huge following, and they love him, sort of. 
But as the chapter moves on, and these people are even called disciples, right? In the passage we're looking at today, they're called disciples, right? A disciple is somebody who says, this is my teacher. I want to pattern my life after his life and his teachings. And so these people are even called disciples. But by the end of the chapter, there are only 12. The thousands have gone. They've left. They've turned back. And so it would appear that Jesus, Jesus is a failure. If this were a a presidential primary and you were his advisor, one, Jesus would be in dead last. He has not succeeded in creating a movement. In fact, his entire movement seems to have left and now he's just left with his inner circle. And if you were one of his advisors, you would probably say, hey, Jesus, it's time to leave the campaign. You're done. Let's, let's throw your support behind one of the other front runners. By the end of chapter 6, Jesus seems to have chased off all of his followers. And here's why. From this point forward, we are, we are one year away from the cross. We are almost to the day, one year, from when Jesus will enter Jerusalem to celebrate his last Passover. And almost to the day, one year away from Jesus carrying a cross, bloody and scarred, to a hill outside of Jerusalem to die. And what Jesus has done in all this talk about flesh and blood and eating and drinking and giving his flesh for the life of the world is he has put his death clearly in front. He has set it before himself and he has set it before his followers and he has basically said, you want to follow me? This is the way we have to go. There is no crown without the cross. And we see how the people respond. Jesus' words are offensive to our natural mind. Just look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. This is a hard word. Who can hear it? Who can listen to it? Not, not hard to understand, but hard to accept. Jesus' Jesus's words are hard to swallow. He himself is hard to swallow. He is no smooth talker. You, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't buy a car, or anything else for that matter, from Jesus. And so they say, this is hard. Who can accept it? Who can hear it? And Jesus knows this in himself. He is God after all, so he can read their minds. He can read what they're thinking. He, he hears their grumbling. And he says, does this offend you? Do you take offense at this, that... That word for offense is uh, the Greek word scandalizo. You hear our own word scandal in there. What Jesus is saying is scandalous to them. What it literally means is to trip up, to stumble over. Jesus' words cause them to stumble, cause them to trip. Imagine, uh, imagine you know, you don't have to imagine, you can do it today running down this amazingly smooth sidewalk we have out here next to the church. 
right? You've seen people, you've seen children, my own children, right, as they run headlong down the sidewalk without any notice of the fact that all the tiles are like this. And so all it takes is one toe to catch a corner, and over you go. We have many stumbling blocks. That's what is going on here. And for a, for a Jewish person, that often meant something that caused another one to sin. You didn't want to lay a stumbling block in front of your brother. But Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, We preach Christ crucified. And, and what, he's, what he's been doing is, in, in 1 Corinthians, in this first letter to the Corinthian church, he says, Jews look for a sign, right? They're looking for this miraculous display of God's power to know that this is the one. And that's what's happening in John 6. These people want Jesus' miracles to prove that he is the one. Paul says, Jews look for a sign, and Gentiles look for wisdom, Right? The answer to life's problems is found in wisdom, in the hallowed halls of learning. But, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. We preach that man's best hope is not in some miraculous display of power. It's not found in the hallowed halls of wisdom and understanding. Man's best hope is found on a bloody cross. Man's best hope is found in a shameful execution. We preach the Messiah crucified. Those two words, even those two words together are scandalous. The Messiah, God's chosen one to rescue his people from slavery and sin and shame. God's chosen one crucified, killed, executed in a painful public and horrific way reserved for the worst, reserved for thieves. We preach Christ crucified, and that is a stumbling block to Jews. And it is a foolish, it is foolish, it is folly to Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying is it trips up conventional wisdom. It trips up the way we naturally think. Surely the way up is not the way down. Surely man's best hope is not found in death. But that's exactly what the Christian message is. And so Jesus says, do you you take offense at this? Do my words make you stumble, trip up? Why does Jesus offend us? Just look over chapter 6 and you can come up with these reasons. Jesus offends us. Because he challenges our desires. He challenges our natural desires, right? He looks at the crowd and he says, you're working for food that's going to perish. You need to be working for food that lasts forever. We are so caught up in the now. We are so caught up in the material. We are so caught up in what we can have that we don't even realize that it's gone tomorrow. And all the while, as Paul says in Colossians, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Jesus offends us because he challenges our desires. He challenges what we really want and says you don't want the right thing. Jesus offends us because he challenges our self-reliance. He comes to them and he says, you can't do this. You can't save yourself. Life is found in me and in me alone. Jesus offends us because he challenges our authority. 
our autonomy, this desire to rule ourselves and to be the master of our own fate, Jesus says, God is the one who draws you to believe. God is the one who works your salvation. God is the main actor here, not you. Your story is not your story, but his story played out in your life. And Jesus offends us because he challenges our reason. Jesus looks at at this crowd and he says, I have come down from heaven. And they say, no, you haven't. This is Jesus. We know his mama and his daddy. They live just around the corner. We watch this boy grow up. And Jesus says to them and to us, you don't know everything you think you know. That purely on your reason alone, you you cannot apprehend what I am saying. So Jesus challenges our reason. And ultimately, he challenges our understanding of salvation. That the way to have the life you really want is to first experience death. The way to get into heaven is not by working really hard, but by submitting to Jesus' death on the cross and being united to that. And so you must experience a death before you can come into life. And that is painful, and that is offensive. And it's not the way my natural mind works. And so, left to myself, I trip over the words of Jesus. They are offensive. Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Verse 62, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before... What he's saying is, he's already, he's already said he is the one who has come down. He is the one who has descended. And so he says, you think, you think you're offended now. What about when I have to go back? Because the way that I'm going to go back, the way that I'm going to ascend, is I have to be lifted up on the cross. So what about when you see me on the cross? How, how offensive will that be? What about when you... When you realize the tomb is empty, what if you see me go up into the clouds of heaven? What then? Will you still be tripped up then? He says, the spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You see, hard words spur, these hard words spur unbelief in the masses. And so Jesus says, your flesh, your natural abilities won't be able to help you hear me. If you're just listening with your natural ears and if you're just thinking about this with your natural mind, you won't be able to hear me. The Spirit must give life. John 3, you must be born again. Genesis 1, the Spirit works in life. But really the image that Jesus is using comes from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God takes the prophet Ezekiel and he drops him in this valley that is filled with dry bones. Life hasn't seen that valley in years. The bones are dusty dry. There's not a shred of tissue left on them. You can imagine the eerie silence. And then it says this in Ezekiel 37.4. 
Then God said to me, Prophesy, preach over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel obeys. He begins preaching over the bones. And the Spirit rushes in. And and tissue begins to form on the bones. Sinews begin pulling the bones together. And the whole house of Israel, this defeated army laid waste, is brought back to life. That is what happens when the Spirit speaks. And that is what must happen for us to believe in Jesus. The Spirit gives life. The picture is, the, is of the utter inability of the flesh, a picture of hopelessness. And the Spirit must give life to, to dead bones. But Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who did not believe, who it was who would betray him. There have always been, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and even today, there have always been disciples who really weren't disciples. There have always been those in the church who really weren't part of the church. They don't understand what Jesus says. They, they maybe follow Jesus for a season, but they follow for the wrong reasons. And yet even this is part of the plan. Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who those were who did not believe. He even knows his own betrayer. And, that's, and he says, and that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is all part of the plan. Even, even this mass defection and betrayal is part of the plan. And so what happens? After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. The sense is, is they went to what was behind. They turned around. They said, you know what? I don't think this mountain is worth climbing anymore. I mean, it was, it was good when there were miracles, right? It was good when there was bread. But now he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he's getting all up in my personal space and telling me what I should and shouldn't love, what I should and shouldn't want. No. No, I think it's time to turn around. I think it's time to go back, back to the old life, back to the way that it was. We can't go there. So what about you? What, what do you do when Jesus offends your sensibilities? When Jesus zigs and you thought he should zag? When Jesus calls you to do something you really don't want to do. When Jesus says you have to yield your authority over to me. And you have to follow me. Their hearts are revealed. They say this is hard. Who can accept it? 
And so they leave. And you can imagine uh, that the twelve are standing there with Jesus and they're watching these people walk away. People that they knew, probably. People that they had had some conversation with and maybe even were friends with. And now they're leaving. And it looks pretty disappointing. Pretty depressing. And as, and as the people are walking away and these twelve remaining men turn around and look at Jesus, Jesus says, well, do you want to go too? And Peter reveals what leads to true discipleship. It's really the key verses in this passage. If their hearts were saying, this is hard, who can accept it? Peter says on behalf of the disciples, this is life. What choice do we have? Peter says, Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? You have the words of life. There's there's nothing back there for us. And that's the heart. That's the heart of true discipleship. Believers, believers hear Jesus Jesus' promise of life. They hear Jesus' promise of exclusivity, uh, offer of exclusivity, saying, if you really want life, you've only got to come to me. They, they hear that, but they hear death. They hear life, but they perceive it as death. They say, no, 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 there's, there's got to be something else. And so they leave. But the true disciple is one who says, there's nothing else. Where can I go? Lord, you have the words of life. The heart of un... Jesus says, you won't find satisfaction anywhere else. But the heart of unbelief says, yes, I can. And walks away. Jesus says, you cannot find satisfaction anywhere else. And the true disciple says, you're right. Where would we go? Jesus, there's nothing for us back there. We have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, but in you. You have the words of life. And we have come to believe in you and to know. So notice, notice that belief is based on knowledge. That this isn't some empty, open, uh, airy faith, but that Peter's confession of faith is grounded in who he believes Jesus and knows Jesus to be. You are the Holy One of God. You are the one who truly represents God. There is no way to know God apart from you, Jesus. So where else would we go? Do you long for Jesus like that? Do you long for Jesus with Peter's longing? That's, what, that's where true discipleship is. That's the heart of true discipleship, a, heart, a desperate longing to have Jesus and nothing else. Is that what you want? Maybe, maybe you're a theology guy and you like the Bible 
and you like knowledge. And that's good. But in that knowledge, are you desperate for Jesus? Are you desperate to have Him and nothing else? Just a chapter before, the Pharisees are guilty of studying the Bible and missing Jesus. So in your Christianity, have you forgotten Christ? Or is it grounded on a longing, a desperate longing for Him? Maybe you're not a Christian. Know then the invitation stands in this. That to to be a Christian and to follow Jesus means that you must treasure Him above everything else. He must be your sole treasure. And it means that all the other treasures, good as they may be, will pale in comparison. And that the Christian life is really one of, of seeing those treasures diminish. All that glitters is not gold. Do you have a desperate longing to have Jesus and nothing else? Peter has a good answer to Jesus' question. He speaks for the remaining 12. Well, really he speaks for just 11 of them. Because Jesus responds to him, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Even in the inner circle, even in, even in the people that Jesus has chosen to be closest to him, this band of friends and followers that he would spend the remaining year with, that he would eat his last meal with, even in this group, the devil is at work. Even in this group, there is a betrayer. He didn't turn away right now. He will turn away then. So is Jesus a failure? No, even this is part of the plan. Even this is going the way that it is supposed to go. Because even these 12 men, minus the betrayer, even the 11 remaining true disciples will flee. And Jesus will go to the cross alone. Publicly, a failure. To all human reason, a failure and a fraud. But that is the plan. Because out of that failure will come God's success. When all else seems to be lost, Jesus will go to the cross and He will conquer God's greatest enemy. And He will conquer your greatest enemy. And He will claim victory on the third day when He rises from the dead. Even failure, especially human failure, is God's success in Christ. Whose side are you on? Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for the scandal of the cross. It is repugnant to our natural minds. It is not the way we would win 
It's not the way our society or our culture aims to win. Victory comes through stomping your enemy into the ground. But not not in the kingdom. In your kingdom, victory comes through death. And even though to our mind's eye, to our natural minds, Jesus, and to the watching world, Jesus will look like a failure. You, O Lord, would have the last laugh, for this is how you designed it to be all along. So that we can remember when when we are maligned and hated for clinging to a scandalous cross, when we look like losers, then we are winners if we are in Christ. So we thank you for the scandal, the stumbling block, the offense of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.